0-2, two, two outs, ninth inning, Yankees up 6-4. Rivera sets and deals. Strike three, ball game over, Yankees win, and it's perfect because the greatest closer in history now has the most saves in history. With 6-0-2, he moves ahead of Trevor Hoffman, and he stands alone atop the closer mountain. And welcome to episode number 43 of the Sportscasters. It is September 22nd, 2011. We are coming to you from a very excited Western New York as our Buffalo Bills are 2-0, getting ready to host the 2-0 New England Patriots, a team that they've lost to 15 straight times. Yeah, most... Longest streak of any two teams in the league, I believe. The last time they beat them was on opening day in 2003, the yep. lawyer Malloy game. Yeah, Sam Adams. And we are going to spend some time in episode number 43 here talking about that game with Kerry J. Byrne from coldheartfootballfacts.com. But the interview is not going to be limited to just Bills and Patriots. We kind of have designed this show to have more of a national feel, and we will get into some other statistical things with Kerry J. Byrne about what's going on in the National Football League. We're also going to talk a little bit about baseball. Don and I kind of both incorrectly declared the baseball season dead, maybe a little prematurely. What, about a month ago? Yeah. It seemed like all the races are over, and suddenly the Rays and the Cardinals have made things interesting in the American and National League wildcard races. So we're lucky enough to have Joe Lemire. Joe's going to be calling us live from Fenway Park, where he is covering the Red Sox and Orioles game today. So Joe Lemire will be on the show as well as Kerry J. Byrne. A couple of uh, reminders before we get to today's show. Last week we did a really nice show, episode number 41, with Lee Jenkins, John Wertheim, two of our favorite guys ever from Sports Illustrated. And we also did a spot with Jason Lock and Fora from the NFL Network. So you can always check out our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can find us on Downcast, Instacast, Podcaster, Podcast Player Pro, all kinds of ways to find the show, Stitcher Radio. And if you're interested in checking out episode 41, again, we have Lee Jenkins, John Wertheim, and Jason Lock and Fora. As for this week, we also had episode number 42, which we released with Jay Clemens and Damon Hack. Jay Clemens, of course, is from the National Football Post, fantasy writer, award-winning fantasy writer. And Damon Hack is from Sports Illustrated, and we did a great interview with Damon. So definitely check out episode number 42. But we have business here. It's episode number 43. Again, we have Joe Lemire from SportsIllustrated.com. Carrie J. Byrne from Cold Football Facts, ColdHardFootballFacts.com. Let's get it started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> 
best friend. Yep. Now let's move on to other business. If you've been a regular listener of this show, you know that I have a kind of love-hate relationship with college football. Look at it. I love Oklahoma. I love having a team. I enjoy watching the games. I love the SEC and the rivalries. I love the stadiums. We love the fight songs. We always play fight songs right, on right. the show. So there's a lot of things I love about college football. But ever since the very first episode of this show, when we had on Jeff Passan, the author of Death to the BCS, we've talked about some of the things that we hate about college football. And one thing that I hate is all of this crazy conference realignment stuff that's happening or not happening or sort of happening, sort of not happening over the last two years or so. And Oklahoma, who I love, has kind of embarrassed themselves in the last week here, flirting with moving to the Pac-10 or the SEC or one of those, and then deciding to stay once again for the second time in under a year. They've decided to stay put in the Big 12, a conference that calls itself the Big 12, but only has 10 teams, which is, of course, ridiculous. That is kind of compounded by the fact that Texas A&M threw a big pity party and left the Big 12 because they said that Texas is going to get an unfair recruiting advantage because of a network that they created and knew about for years now. So Texas A&M is gone. They're leaving to the SEC, who's now going to have 13 teams. The Pac-10 is trying to create a Pac-16 and all this stuff is really annoying. The Syracuse and Pitt just left the Big East. They're going to the ACC. There's all this shuffling and maneuvering. And it, it, it pisses me off. But, but, Zach Rosenfield, a friend of ours, no longer with AccuScore.com, now just Sooner Zach. Right. A good friend of ours who knows college football, knows way more than I do, knows way, way more than you do, Don, about college football, probably more than us combined. Made a good point on Twitter. He said, wait all this out. Let it play out. Don't get too overly discouraged because what this is leading to is the plus one or a playoff. Huh. Everyone's sort of positioning themselves to be in the right spot for when this BCS contract ends in 2015, which suddenly is only a few years away. I remember when I first heard it was extended to 2015. It felt like it was years and years and years away well my brother started college this year he's in the class of 2015 right so it's not that far away so hang in there it probably bugs you it bugs me but there may be a light at the end of the tunnel and we may be headed towards a plus one or a playoff and i want to mention that our buddy Stuart mandel from si.com puts out a mailbag every tuesday and his mailbag did a fantastic job, way better than I just did, explaining the conference realignment and why he dislikes it and what he sees happening in the future. Yeah, let's hope so, uh, that they get that plus one or playoff in. My first thing, Michael Bully perhaps was a part of the turning point of last Monday night's game. Sam Bradford kind of threw a bad pass to Cadillac Williams, who did the worst thing and just stand there, stood there when he dropped the ball. Michael Bully picked it up, ran 60 yards to the end zone, and then he did something that's hard to explain. He, he held the ball out in front of himself, 
and then took the ball and whipped it through the end zone after he scored, which a lot of players will do. They'll just spike the ball at the wall. I don't know why, just sign of celebration. But when he did it, he drilled a kid in the face. Ouch. Uh, if you haven't seen it, look for it. It's everywhere. Look for Michael Boley on YouTube, or there's animated GIFs of it everywhere. Uh, I believe this kid is some intern, and Michael Boley's stance on it is that, hey, he's got the kid a lot of pub now. So uh, there's not really much more to say about it, but it was hilarious. I watched it live, and I had to d- the, rewound the DVR like 12 times. To, like, did I really just see him just spike the ball into that kid's face? And sure enough, he did. It's it's pretty hilarious. What is this kid going to do with this pub? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what Michael Bowling means. Like, he got pub for getting his nose busted. Wow. Where can I sign up? <laughs> right. All right, my second thing. It always interests me, and I always get a kick out of it, when Red Sox fans are put in a position where they have to cheer for their hated New York Yankees. And as we talk right now, Red Sox fans all over the United States of America are hoping that the Yankees can sweep the doubleheader that they're in the middle of playing against the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, the Yankees won the first game 4-2, to two, and the Red Sox, as we talk right now, are tied in their game against Baltimore. But what happened recently, and we're going to talk about this with Joe Lemire, is the Red Sox have run into some injuries. Their pitching has kind of faltered. And out of nowhere, kind of in the month of September, the Tampa Bay Rays have gotten it all together with that extra 2% that our buddy Jonah Carey wrote about and almost caught the Red Sox. I think the closest they've got it is two. But they ran into the Yankees. They lost last night. They lost the first game today. It looks like the second game is either postponed or delayed because of rain. I know it's raining here in Buffalo. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't look like that game started just yet. But I've always I always get a kick out of it when Yankees fans or Red Sox fans have to root for the other team because I I can't think of another rivalry in sports where there's so much animosity seemingly between the the two uh, the two teams uh, fan bases. So I just kind of wanted to mention that I got a kick out of that. <laughs> My second thing this week is uh, apparently. The Jags are already giving up on their season. Uh, I shouldn't say that. That sounds a little negative. But uh, Blaine Gabbert's going to get his first career start against fellow draft pick Cam Newton. Um, it's a it's a weird move in that it makes me feel like if there was a full off season, he would have been the starter from week one. Because what exactly? I know McCowan hasn't been good, but they are one and one. So it's far what from do you mean? McCown hasn't been good. You mean six <laughs> for nineteen for fifty nine yards and four picks isn't good? No, no. So oh. maybe maybe they expected nice. more out of him. Maybe it was just a stopgap. Uh, like I said, maybe if there was a full preseason, Gabbert would have had the job right from the start. But it should be interesting to see Newton and Gabbert on the field together uh, for the first time. You know, I killed the Jags right off the start with this, and I called out Jack Del Rio. I said he was a jerk. I said he was a money-grubbing piece of garbage between him and the owner. And what they did, the way they humiliated David Garrard, is embarrassing. Yep. They had him go to a team pep rally. He was announced as a starting quarterback. He gave an interview. And then they unceremoniously cut him uh, to avoid having to pay his guaranteed money for the year. And I have a friend who's a really 
colorblind Jags fan. <laughs> and he was trying to convince me that, oh, Luke McCowan's been the best in camp, even though he only threw 15 passes in the preseason, didn't play at all in the third preseason game. And I think what we're seeing here is obviously they wanted to hand it off to Gabbert, but they didn't think that Gabbert was quite ready, probably because of the shortened offseason and because of the fact that McCowan has just been so atrocious. You might as well just let Gabbert play, right? Yeah, I guess so. And, I mean, they have to know they're not a team that's ready to compete, even at 1-1. One and one. My third thing this week, Jesse Holly. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did I jump you? You doing two in a row here, oh, buddy? Sorry, I did jump you. Go ahead. Back off. <laughs> How dare you? All right, my third thing. Uh, two and a half men. That was. Were they serious last night? That was the worst television I've ever seen in my life. I know the ratings were good. I expected the ratings to be good. I knew people would be interested and curious to see what the show would look like, how they would make the transition from Charlie Sheen, who's a pretty funny guy, has been in a hilarious movie like Major, Major League. League, to Austin Kutcher. Were you a fan of the show before? I, I've never really liked it. I mean, so the show I can't is the show is okay. Always thought it was okay. Yeah, uh, I've seen episodes here and there that were really funny. I've seen episodes mm-hmm. that just weren't. It was kind of a pretty formulaic sitcom. Sitcom, yeah. That was it. Was always too sitcommy for me. Yeah, and I, I look at. I was never a huge fan of the show. Uh, I've enjoyed the show from time to time, but what they put out last night was a joke and. I don't think it's going to make it through. Maybe it'll make it through the season because they don't want Charlie Sheen to be the winner, so to speak. Yeah. But I don't think that they can bring this nonsense back next year. It was a horrible, horrible display of television. And I was hoping that we would be able to have Daniel Feinberg from HitFix.com on today. It didn't work out, but we're going to give it a chance and uh, try for him again next week. All right, go ahead, Nancy Pants. <laughs> All right, as I alluded to, Jesse Holly, uh, he went from kind of happy, feel-good story to almost not a feel-good story, but it ended up being a feel-good story. He was a guy that has been cut, I believe, twice. Um, he competed on a show run by Michael Irvin called Fourth and Long, which was basically like an invincible-type reality show Yep, where they tried players out. And six cornerbacks, six wide receivers. Six cornerbacks, six wide receivers, and I, did he win it? Yep, he won it, and what that guaranteed him was the 80th spot in Cowboys camp a few years ago. Okay, well, he somehow has made it to the team. He stayed on the team, and because of injuries, he Practice was... Practice squad the last two years. He was... In the game for overtime. And the fourth. And the fourth, right, yeah. He had a catch or two before, but then in overtime. And the cool part about this is on the sideline, they had a clip of Romo talking to him. And yeah. Obviously, you don't know what he said. It could have just said, like, how's it going, whatever. But you never know. Maybe he was telling him, hey, be ready because I'm looking for you. And it turns out he found him, and he ran. I can't remember how long it was. About 80 yards would be my guess before being tackled because he was kind of hot-dogging it. So that was a little bit dumb. He should know his place probably and have just run into the end zone made everybody happy. But they ended up, uh, I believe, kicking a field goal on the next play and winning the game in overtime. So congrats to Jesse Holly, who is uh, another invincible-type story. 
You know, and if he never does another thing in his NFL career, and he might because as beat up as they are at wide receiver. He's going to have to play probably this week. He might week. have to play a little yeah. bit. If he doesn't do anything else, what an accomplishment for a guy who's from Missouri, was out of football, and started restarted his career on a reality show. Yeah. I mean, and for as much as some people have criticized reality television – do you know what channel it was on? It was on uh, FX. It was on FX. Or no, so Spike. I'm sorry. Spike. Spike. Do you think they do it again? They might as well now. Yeah, I guess they have a somewhat of a success story. So, And I don't see why the Cowboys, now that camp is even 90 players instead of 80. Right, right. If they've once been willing to give that 80th spot up, why not give up the 90th spot? You hit on it once, why not try one more time? He ended the game with three catches for 96 yards, the, the last catch being a 77-yarder. That would have been probably an 80-yarder hit he scored. Very great story. Some interesting stuff in three things today. It is pouring in Buffalo. Yeah, it's I starting think to I thunder said a little it bit. It was beautiful yeah. earlier. All right, here's where we go from here. Joe Lemire is going to be next. It's a little bit shorter than we're used to doing, but, again, he was live from Fenway Park, so we'll have the interview with Joe Lemire. We're going to come back with a book club update. Got something interesting to mention about the book club. And then we're going to – do an interview with Kerry J. Byrne from ColdHardFootballFacts.com and then end the show with the second pick four of the week. So we will be right back. Our next guest was born in Richmond, Virginia and spent his childhood in Lowell, Massachusetts before returning to the South for college where he graduated from the University of Virginia. Today he is a writer for Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, where he covers Major League Baseball. A warm sportscaster's welcome for the second time to the very talented Joe Lemire. Uh, doing well. Thanks for having me again. I guess I uh, didn't offend you too much if uh, I got the repeat invite. <laughs> hey, no, we had a great time last time. And, you know, I'm guilty of something that I have to admit to you right now. And what I'm guilty of is about a month ago, I kind of declared the season over. I kind of felt like the teams that were in position at the head of their divisions and at the head of the wild card, they just weren't going to change. The leads were too big, and it was just done. And I kind of drifted away. I started to focus on football. The podcast started focusing on football a little bit. And we kind of got caught sleeping because here we are with about 10 or 11 or 12 games left. And we have some serious races in both wild cards. And maybe now at this point, uh, both of the Western divisions are somewhat established. But we have some serious wild card races. And I slept on that and kind of woke up and realized, wow. This is uh, it's going to be a great finish, huh? Yeah, I think uh, you, you weren't the only one who was guilty of writing off the season uh, a little prematurely. Uh, you know, well, one big point that Commissioner Seeley has made, uh, you know, he, he seems very interested in adding a second wild card, adding a fifth team that will make the playoffs, and exactly how that format will work remains up for discussion. Most likely it'll just be a, a one game or a best of three play in between the two wild cards to to get back to where the uh, the original wild card would be in the in the standing. Uh, and it did seem that with the three division races in each league and a wild card race in each league generally foregone conclusions that seemed to be the, the, the silver bullet uh, of ammunition that Sealy needed to, to push this across. Uh, it sort of 
Uh, I haven't quite decided yet whether I really think we need another wild card or not, and I know that's the consensus of a lot of other people as well. Uh, so it seemed like here's Felix's way of making sure we have meaningful baseball by expanding the playoffs. Uh, and then, you know, we all kind of fell asleep for a week or two, and uh, everything started uh, inching a, a lot closer. Uh, you know, the Angels uh, had been putting a little bit of pressure on the Rangers, but uh, that uh, hasn't really gone any further. It's been oscillating back and forth between about two and five games. Looks like Texas will hold on now. Uh, but you're right, uh, you know, the Red Sox have been hit by injuries and, uh, and poor performance at a, at a poor time, at the, just as the race started surging in September. So that, that one is uh, extremely close. Uh, the Angels are still kind of hovering around in the wild card picture. Uh, and the Braves, uh, perhaps showing a little bit of uh, overuse of their three-headed bullpen monster, uh, Kimbrel, Venters, and, and Flaherty, all three of them uh, having you know historic seasons, but they've also been pitched uh, an extraordinary amount of times, more than 75 appearances for each, and they've started to slip a little bit, and as that's happened, uh, the Braves have lost a few leads and allowed the, the surging Cardinals and Giants to uh, at least make it interesting. I don't think the, the Giants uh, are in position to make a real run, but you know the Cardinals are still hanging around, and with uh, you know about a week to go in the season, uh, this is pretty fun. Since you just mentioned the Giants, I want to ask you a, a kind of a quick aside about them. Uh, Lee Jenkins was on the show last week, and we kind of talked about this for a second. And I want to get your opinion. It kind of I really enjoyed the Giants program on Showtime, the season with the Giants. But it sure felt to me, and it could just be a coincidence, but it seemed like that show kind of picked up right at the All-Star break with the uh, Vogelsong story was kind of the focus of the first episode. And it seemed like as it went on for the seven weeks that, w- that it was on, the Giants went from comfortably in the lead to kind of getting pressured by the Diamondbacks to being a couple games down to being out of it. And Mr. Jenkins and I were kind of talking about that and do you think that there was some distractions involved there that led to this? Or we've kind of seen it with Hard Knocks and some of these other shows like it. Or do you think that the Giants just had so many injuries and had been on such a great streak of winning one-run games that this was just bound to happen? Yeah, I think I'm more in the bound-to-happen category. I mean, it, no matter how you... Uh, dress up uh, the distractions and injury picture. I mean, they just have a, a well below average offense, and uh, I haven't looked in the last week or so, but for a while they had the fewest runs scored of all 30 major league teams, and that's just, uh, that more than anything has been their, their ill. And if you, if you talk about distractions on a show like that, considering the turnaround time of editing and putting it all together, uh, having the camera on a day to day basis would be far more of a distraction than the show actually airing. Uh, and so we're seeing it as a lag, and so we're seeing the TV shows as the team is falling apart, but uh, a lot of the distraction had come, uh, you know, a bit before that. Uh, so I, I think the, the Giants, the great pitching staff that they have, uh, it just wasn't enough with uh, an offense um, that just, you know, couldn't quite cut it. Back to the wild card races here, is there a... Are you more? Do you think that the Rays are more likely to catch the Red Sox, or do you think that the Cardinals are more likely to catch the Braves, or vo- or both? Uh, I think the Rays have a little bit better uh, of a shot, just because they are playing so well, and particularly pitching so well. Just as the Red Sox are, are kind of falling apart almost, 
Um, they, uh, you know, with, with Bedard uh, just barely coming back from injury, Lackey being, uh, you know, one of the having one of the worst starting seasons in Red Sox history, uh, and Kyle Whalen just clearly not being ready for the major leagues, uh, and, and Tim Wakefield, uh, you know, being hit routinely, uh, hitting hard, being hit hard routinely every time he gets the, the ball. Uh, the Red Sox, the, the depth of their pitching staff isn't in a very good shape. Uh, uh, they are entering a stretch with, um, you know, beginning Wednesday through the, the rest of the season. In their final seven games, they could potentially be having a, you know, at least three starts, uh, if not four, from Beckham and Lester. So, uh, you know, that, that will help them a lot. Um, but it's not a – but if the Rays get hot, as they've shown that they can uh, this month, um, that's – uh, a race that's more in jeopardy. Uh, I still think the Red Sox and Braves will hold on to their leads, but there's a chance if the Red Sox need to pitch back at next Tuesday and Luster next Wednesday in their final two games just to make it, or potentially even in a one-game playoff to, to clinch a spot, uh, that it would be in no shape to advance beyond the first round. If they're able to clinch things by Monday and, and hold on to those guys, uh, all of a sudden, if you have four starts from the two of them, or at least three in a, in a short series, the Red Sox become a very dangerous team again, because let's not forget how uh, they do have the best offense in the major leagues in terms of runs scored. Um, so uh, the Rays have a, a chance of catching up with the, the Sox uh, in, in this week, but uh, I do think both teams will hold on. But at least they got interesting, right, guys? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was it got dull there for a second, but you you mentioned about how Major League Baseball seems like they want to add this extra team, and if they did that, we would have never revived the season at all, right? I mean, is this has the way this season played out really kind of put an exclamation point that we're kind of good where we're at? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. And uh, you know, when it was first mentioned, uh, you know, the idea. Uh, you know, it seemed like you know it would add a little extra drama. Would I think? But particularly the way that the AL East has has taken shape the last few years, with uh, you know, for a couple maybe uh, with the Red Sox, Yankees, and Rays being among the three best American League teams for a couple of years in a row now. Uh, the fact that only two of them are capable of making the playoffs, that, that, uh, you know, this seemed to be a knee jerk reaction to to give hope to more teams, um, but. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I, I do think it might uh, dilute the, the playoffs a little bit. Um, I think Tom Verducci, uh, my esteemed colleague, uh, I think he sort of knows best on this, and he, he's written repeatedly uh, how much drama. To remind everyone how much drama there is in those one game sink or swim, uh, you know, to get into the playoffs. Gale Central's had a couple in the last few years, uh, and if the two wild cards meeting for one game. That would drive up ratings. I think that Tigers-Twins game from a couple of years ago had one of the highest ratings of the season, even though those aren't exactly huge markets. And the game was played at a pretty awkward time, starting around 5 or 6 uh, on, on the East Coast. Uh, I think you can drive up a lot of interest by having these one-game knockouts. Uh, I know some people will, will, will complain that one game isn't, shouldn't, isn't how baseball's played, that shouldn't decide who gets in or out, but you've already had 162 games. This, this would really be game 163, and, you know, if, um, you know, if you can't win the division uh, in that original season, then maybe, uh, you know, maybe we need to, to rethink things that way. Um, I do think it would restore a lot more significance to winning the division as well, uh, as it is now the wild card is barely penalized, you know, maybe just uh, one or two fewer home games. But, again, in a baseball series, maybe that doesn't matter uh, a, a whole lot. So uh, I, I think... 
I think your original point is right that this, we're probably fine the way we are. Uh, but if they add a second one, a second wild card, they need, need to do it the right way and, and keep the playing as short as possible. The sportscasters are here with Joe Lemire from Sports Illustrated, SportsIllustrated.com. Just a couple more minutes left. Uh, a question about the National League. The, the Phillies have kind of run away with this thing all year. They've been the best team in Major League Baseball seemingly by far for most of the year. It seems like that the Brewers are maybe the team that are best fit to compete with them. If you were the Brewers, would you rather play them in the shorter five-game series or would you rather, as things stand right now, avoid them in the first round and take your best shot in the seven-game series? I don't think I want any part uh, of the Phillies at all. Right. Um, although, I guess in the last week they've had some injury scares with Ryan Howard and Hunter Pence. Uh, I don't think, uh, not all the information is in on Pence, and uh, you know, it doesn't seem like Howard will be sidelined for long. Um, I, I guess I would say if you're going to take out the Phillies, the shorter the better, just because you can. It's a lot easier to seal one game against Halliday or one game against Lee than to face to try to try to beat them multiple times. Uh, when you have such great pitching, uh, the shorter, especially the depth that they have, if you try to get them in a shorter series, is better. Um, and, and the Brewers, uh, sort of a weird team construction. I mean, they have one of the most exaggerated home road splits I've seen. That they are so much better at, at home, and they're in the top three uh, in baseball in terms of percentage of runs scored via the home run. And so uh, they're not sustaining attacks the way other teams can, and thus. Um, you know, the offense can kind of come and go. And so if they play the Phillies in a five-game series uh, and all of a sudden that's the series where the home runs come in bunches from, you know, Fielder, Braun, Hart, Weeks, uh, McGee, and they've got no shortage of guys who can put it over the fence. Uh, and so I think uh, when you're going in against the Phillies, you're going to be the significant underdog um, trying to take him out in a shorter number of games is the way to do it. Do you think that Justin Verlander deserves to win the American League MVP and the Cy Young, or are you of the camp that thinks that the Cy Young is the pitcher's award and that the MVP is for the hitters? It's uh, somewhere in between. I, I'm not opposed to uh, a pitcher re- winning the MVP, but because the Cy Young exists, I think it re- really needs to be an extraordinary circumstance. And though Verlander's having a superlative season, uh, it's not it, you know, I think if you look, particularly if you're adjusting for the, the run-scoring environment, it's not nearly as good as some of the years that Pedro Martinez had with the Red Sox in the heart of the steroids era, and he didn't win an MVP. Um, and it's not like Verlander is on a team with uh, a bunch of players that aren't very good, and he's single-handedly leading him in there, uh, leading him into the playoffs. I mean, you look at Miguel Cabrera, and he's having one of the finest offensive seasons in the entire American League. I mean, he, even he should be receiving some, uh, you know, at least consideration, maybe even if it's not getting first place votes. Miguel Cabrera should be at least somewhere uh, on most writers' ballots, because uh, I think you are voting top ten. Um, and so I, I think Verlander is, should be a slam dunk Cy Young winner. I can't imagine him not getting every single first place vote. Um, but I don't think this is the right season to award him the MVP when there are not only a pretty good candidate on his own team, but you look at the seasons that Jose Batista, Curtis Granderson, Jacoby Ellsbury, and Adrian Gonzalez have had, uh, and there's certainly no shortage of good candidates. The New York Yankees have had two pretty significant historical achievements this year. Derek Jeter, of course, surpassed the 3,000 hit mark, and Mariano Rivera got a 600 save, and then past Trevor Hoffman for the most saves of all time. Which of those two award, uh, accomplishments do you think are more significant historically? Um, well, I, I guess you know the, the save record, I mean, Rivera being number one, uh, you know, would have to trump uh, 
uh, a, a list of, of guys, you know, a few dozen that have gotten the 3,000 hits, uh, and with a, a small caveat that saves are coming in more frequency just because the role is more defined than it used to be. Pitcher, teams didn't used to pitch relievers based on the save the way that so many do now. Um, but, uh, I mean, Rivera is just, uh, again, it comes back to this, that Rivera is the only uh, player in Major League Baseball history, which I don't think there's any argument that he's the greatest of all time at what he does. Uh, you, know, you can argue until the, the cows come home about the, the greatest starting pitcher, uh, the best, you know, first baseman, left fielder, second baseman, all those sorts of things. But when it comes to greatest relief pitcher in history, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone making a convincing argument for someone other than Mariano Rivera. And to celebrate that and to remind everyone of how good he is, uh, I think his accomplishment uh, uh, certainly uh, maybe slightly best. Derek Jeter's 2,000 hits, which is of course no slight to what a great accomplishment that is. All right, last thing, can I get a World Series pick from you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's hard to go against the Phillies, and while it's uh, boring to go with chalk, uh, I mean, I think at this point of the season, uh, I think I'd have to put the Phillies as uh, as the winner. Uh, the American League is a, a wide-open race. I, I couldn't begin to tell you how that one's going to turn out. Um, but, uh, you know, being put on the spot here without having thought about this, I guess I'd go with the, the, the Texas Rangers. Uh, it seems like... You know, with Derek Collins and pitching a lot better of late, and, and with him on top of C.J. Wilson uh, and, and to a lesser extent, and uh, Matt Harrison and Colby Lewis, the pitching has uh, been very starting. Pitching has been very good of late. Their offense can score in bunches, uh, and obviously they got there last year. Um, and not to mention that their bullpen's improved. And so, I mean, uh, I do think the I think well, let's go Phillies over Rangers in six. All right, the sportscaster is very lucky enough to have Joe Lemire for the second time. He is live from Fenway Park. You can find him at Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can find him on Twitter at SI underscore Joe Lemire, L-E-M-I-R-E. Thank you very much for your time, Joe. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, buddy. We have to thank Joe Lemire for taking some time out of his day at Fenway Park to join us on the show. Baseball season is not dead. We got some uh, some playoff races. All right, I wanted to update the book club today. A couple things going on with the book club. One, we mentioned last week that for the month of September, we would be reading Blood in the Cage, Mixed Martial Arts, Pat Milicek, and the Furious Rise of the USC. That's by our good buddy, John Wertheim. We will have John on at some point to discuss the book. Uh, I got my copy the other day. I ordered it from Amazon, and I think I spent $2.71 plus shipping for a brand new one. Nice. So that book is there to be had for a very cheap price if you would like to read along with us. And a big reason, I don't know if I mentioned this last week or not, but a big reason that we chose this book, one, because we had a relationship with the author, but two, because we've always kind of wanted to bring MMA into the podcast in some way. And we thought that this could be a way that we could kind of ease our listeners into MMA and kind of see what kind of reaction we got to mixed martial arts being a part of the show, more specifically the UFC. Second thing I want to mention about the book club today, I got the October book club book of the month in the mail the other day, and I want to thank Megan from the publishing company for that. The Best American Sports Writing 2011, uh, the guest editor 
is Jane Levy, who, of course, is on episode number 30, I believe, and Glenn Stout, who is also on the episode that ended the last time we used the American Sports Writing Series as the book of the month. It is available for pre-order pretty much anywhere now, and I got the book, and I've already read a few of the stories, and there's some really cool ones, and there's one specifically that I really would like everyone to check out, and it's probably one you can search for now, and it's written by a guy named Michael Faber, who writes for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com, and it's called Eight Seconds, and it's about the eight seconds from the start of the play and the end of the play where Sidney Crosby scored the game-winning goal to beat Ryan Miller in the Olympics. Jerk. Really great article. Um, I'm really excited about the best American sports writing for October or for 2011. I think Jane Levy did a great job. I'm excited to talk to Jane about it. I'm excited to talk to John. excited to talk to Glenn. All these things are going to happen. So get back in the habit of reading with us. The book club's alive and well. And we're going to take a break and come right back with Kerry J. Byrne from coldhardfootballfacts.com. Our next guest is from Quincy, Massachusetts. He is a graduate of Boston College. He has created the revolutionary cold hard football facts concept and is the nation's foremost authority on the gridiron lifestyle of beer, food, and football. He is the main man at coldhardfootballfacts.com. He contributes columns to sportsillustrated.com, WEEI, in Boston. And he's also a food and drinks writer for the Boston Herald. He's contributed work for Esquire, Penthouse, Boston Magazine, and Yankee Magazine. He took first place at the Pro Football Writers of America 2007 Writing Awards. At the 2009 Awards, he earned three honors, more than any other outlet or writer in the country. And in 2010, he did it again. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Kerry J. Byrne. How are you doing today, Kerry? Doing well, Steve. You make, you make me sound like a busy man. <laughs> you are, well, I can imagine that, especially at this time of the year, you are a busy man. So I have to, again, just thank you for your time today. Uh, I'm here in Buffalo, New York, and you're up there in New England, and it's a big weekend for for both cities. I think maybe a little bit more so for Buffalo than New England in the sense that I believe it's 15 straight games now that the Bills have lost to the Patriots. And yeah, something like 21 or 20 out of 21 or something, which is, you know, it's hard to lose that consistently to one opponent, you know what I mean? Yeah, so and the it one, has been quite a quite a one sided affair in recent years. And that one game was the week that uh, Malloy got cut by the Patriots and came to the Bills, and it was an opening day game, and the Bills won. Yeah, week one, week one of two thousand and three. I remember it well. I watched the game at a at a bar room in in like Paramus, New Jersey, or something. I remember. I remember. I was at a Hooters actually, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember that eight years ago. I still remember the game, and it was thirty-one to nothing Buffalo, and it looked like the Patriots were doomed, and Buffalo was ready to rock. And of course, the Patriots gone to win. Uh, what was it? What are they going to win? Thirty. Four of the next thirty-six games, or something, and two Super Bowls, and and uh, so you know the NFL, you know things change fast in the in the NFL season. There's a reason they call it the not so long league, you know. Absolutely. So here's what I want you to do for me because I've I've watched 
parts of both of the Bills games, and you know, as the as the re- as the off season was going on, I was kind of thinking, you know, what are these guys doing? They got rid of Lee Evans kind of real late in the off season. It was like August thirteenth or something when they got rid of Lee Evans, and that felt like a subtraction. I was never a big Ryan Fitzpatrick guy. I liked the draft pick of Darius, but I didn't expect this. What are your numbers saying? Uh, and why have the Bills been so successful these first two weeks? Was it just bad opponents, or have they stumbled upon something? Well, you know, it's it's a little bit of both. You know, uh, first of all, Kansas City was a paper tiger last year. Uh, you know, they had a nice record, ten and six, nice season, but they'd only played what we call coldheartfootballfacts.com three quality opponents, basically three teams with winning records, and. Uh, that may mean nothing to people, but, you know, the NFL is all about scheduling. And the teams who, the seven teams since 2004, since we've been around, have played only three quality opponents in a season, and all three made the playoffs. So the, the Chiefs were a bit of a paper target. They, they were lucky to face a particularly easy schedule. And, and so they weren't as good, perhaps, as they looked. And so Buffalo was lucky to get uh, a bit of an easier opponent than maybe we anticipated. Uh, but that was, but that said, you know, Oakland's been a pretty good team, and, and, and Buffalo really proved that they could, uh, you know, put up some points in, in both these games. So it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. And, you know, the way we measure things at, at quote football facts through what we call our quality stats, these, these are stats that have a direct correlation to winning football games. And the, I don't care who you're playing, you're still playing two NFL opponents, including one that, you know, is a potential, is a potential pretty good team in Oakland, uh, and one was a playoff team last year. And, Buffalo has dramatically, dramatically improved in the indicators, the quality stats we look at, look at to measure each team. Let me, do you mind if I run through a couple of them? No, I'd love to hear it. Uh, of course, first of all, we know Buffalo is 4-12 and 12 last year. Already 2-0 and 0 this year, so that's already a big difference. Uh, Buffalo is 28th last year in scoreability. That's our measure of offensive efficiency. They're second this year. They went from 28th to second. Granted, it's still a young season, but already a dramatic improvement. Uh, their offensive hog index, the, the indicator we use to measure each offensive line, they were 18th in that number last year. One of the better, one of the better statistics for Buffalo in 2010. The 18th best offensive line, still in the bottom half of the league. They're second in that number this year. The second best offensive line through two games. Uh, notice a trend here, some you know dramatic improvements. Uh, points per game, they scored 17.7 points per game last year. 28th, they're number one right now through 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 two games. 39.5 points per game. And perhaps the most telling thing, Steve, in our quality stats power rankings, this ranks each team across the board, top to bottom, and it's usually a reliable indicator of team strength. For example, in 2009, the Saints were number one in our quality stats power rankings and won the Super Bowl. The, the Packers were number one in this indicator in 2010. They won the Super Bowl. Uh, Buffalo last year was dead last, 32nd <laughs> across the board in our indicators, even worse than 2-14 and 14 Carolina. They're second this year through two games. A real great turnaround in all phases of the game, and I think that's going to be really encouraging. It, it, it doesn't look like I don't think they can. Obviously, they're not going to go sixteen and zero, but it doesn't look it looks it doesn't look at all like they're going to be nearly as bad as last year. And worst case, can they have an eight and eight, nine and seven season? Right now, it looks like you know that's that's very much within the realm of possibility. And I think a lot of Bills fans would be encouraged by. You know, even nine and seven at this point. So, in a lot of these numbers, you're saying the Bills are number two. The Bills are number two. Can I take a wild gas leap of faith that maybe the Patriots are number one in some of those categories? 
Uh, and actually, uh, not because we measure teams in all aspects of their of their performance, top to bottom, offensively and defensively. And right now, the Patriots, as exciting as they may be, uh, as explosive as they may be, and Tom Brady, I just did a piece of just up now on Sports Illustrated about the incredible historic run that Tom Brady's on. I mean, since last Thanksgiving, eight games, 24 touchdown passes and one interception. Whew. That is ridiculous. I mean, ridiculous that, that somebody would do that over half the season. Uh, but the Patriots are a highly flawed team. Uh, and the defensive indicators we look at, they're really a bad team defensively. Uh, you know, they played, you know, they made Chad Henney in week one look like a world beater. Philip Rivers, we know, is a good quarterback. But these guys... The reason the Patriots haven't won a Super Bowl in the last several years is because they had not played Super Bowl-caliber pass defense. Winning in the NFL is all about winning the passing battles, dominating on both sides of the ball, and the Patriots have not been good on both sides of the ball. They've only been good on one side. And right now, this year, 28th in passing yards per attempt allowed on defense. They're allowing over 8 yards per attempt. 22nd in defensive passer rating. Okay, that takes a formula for quarterbacks and applies it to pass defense. Steve, this is a critical indicator of team success throughout all of football history. I really want you and your listeners to really look at defensive passer rating analyzing a team. Uh, by the way, the Packers, number one last year in defensive passer rating won the Super Bowl. The Steelers, number two in defensive passer rating won the AFC title. You see that year after year. The Patriots are 22nd. They're 25th on third down defense. Last year, the Patriots have the fifth worst third down defense of this century since 2000. They're not much better in 2000, so far in 2011. The Patriots, as exciting they are, are a flawed team, and by the way, a vulnerable team when you look at how well Buffalo's played and specifically how well Ryan Fitzpatrick has passed the football. Right, well, so Chad Henney had over 400 yards passing against the Patriots in Week 1. Phillip Rivers had a pretty decent day last week. So it sounds like if you're going to take the Patriots on, you're going to have to try to throw against them and uh, rack up yards and points, but can you keep up with them? Well, you know, and that, that brings up kind of a common mythology that people... I remember before the playoff game last year between the Jets and Patriots, and people said the Jets could establish the run, and, and all these, all this mythology you hear about football. The NFL has nothing to do with establishing the run and running the ball well. Nothing. Zero to do historically or today with running the ball well. Case in point, the Packers last year were 25th in average for rush attempt on offense, and 28th stopping the run on defense. It was dashed for 4.64 yards per attempt on defense last year, but they won the Super Bowl because it was a dominant passing team on both sides of the ball. The NFL is a passive league. It always was. It always will be. So the way you beat the Patriots is you find, hopefully, your quarterback is a better day than Tom Brady, and that's how they've lost. They've lost when Tom Brady's had a mediocre day, and the opposing quarterback has had a great day. As in the playoff game last year, Mark Sanchez had a higher average per attempt, a higher passer rating. He had 131 passer rating that night. And that's why the Jets won, because for one night, Mark Sanchez was better than Tom Brady. And right now, you know, Buffalo's improvements, like I said, the NFL is all about the passing game. Anytime you look at a team that's improved dramatically or declined dramatically, go immediately to two numbers. Immediately go to these two numbers, passer rating and defensive passer rating. And therein, you will find the number you need, the number you're looking for. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, an 82 passer rating last year, was a very mediocre quarterback. 110 through two games. That is the difference when your quarterback plays well, you score more points, you win more games. And right now, Ryan Fitzpatrick can exploit this game with defense, and I think Buffalo has more than a puncher's chance to win this football game. Okay, I'm listening to you really closely, and here's my concern. The defensive passer rating, the Bills have played 
Castle and Campbell. Those names yep. are not exactly Marino and Elway. Well, well Brady, no, I understand. <laughs> right. I know where you're going. Brady I, is staring them in the face this week. And Fitzpatrick, I think, has his limitations. Uh, he's, 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 he's average. I think we would both agree he, that, that his ceiling is maybe slightly above average when he's playing his best. So I'm listening to you, and I, I think if I was a Bills fan, I'd be ecstatic about the things you were saying, but I'm worried maybe that the Bills are kind of paper champions right now because of the competition they've played, and, and maybe this week is even more of a barometer than I thought it would be for the Bills because now they're really going to have to see if they can hold up this defensive passer rating when they play Brady and not Campbell or Castle. Thoughts? Well, I don't, ex- I don't expect them to shut down Tom Brady. Uh, but I can tell you something, by the way. Let me, let me read you some numbers from, uh, from Tom Brady's last eight games. This is right now on SportsIllustrated.com, and we have the numbers this week at Cold Hearts Football Facts. Uh, Right now, we're looking at Tom Brady, like I said, over the last eight games, 24 touchdowns, one interception. Uh, the great thing that he's been doing, he's been on a historic run in terms of average per attempt, which we like more than passing yards. Because passing yards, if you win the passing yards battle, you win 50% of all NFL games. It doesn't mean anything. You win the average per attempt battle, you win 80% of all NFL games, 75 to 80%. That's all throughout history, and this year, too. Tom Brady went up the touch. The Lions for 12.6 yards per attempt. The Jets, one of the best defenses in the football, wasn't 0.2 yards per attempt. Chicago on a snowy day on the road, 9.2 yards per attempt. The Packers, the Packers, uh, the best pass defense in football last year. Brady had 6.8 yards per attempt. At Miami in the week 17 last year, 12.4 yards per attempt. At Miami first game this year, 10.8 yards per attempt. Against San Diego, 10.6 yards per attempt. The one game. He did not tear somebody up at Buffalo week 16 last year. 5.2 yards per attempt. He scored, he threw for three touchdowns, zero deceptions. But the Buffalo defense held him in check. He had 140 yards that day. It was his worst game in at least the last half season. And, you know, Buffalo made him in, in more of an ordinary quarterback. And all I'm saying is I don't expect Lions to pass to outplay him. All I'm saying is the Patriots have a vulnerable, vulnerable pass defense that can be exploited and has been exploited by average quarterbacks in the past. Hmm. So plenty of reasons for, the, I guess, the Bills and the Bills fans to be optimistic this weekend when they face the Patriots. It's, I don't know if we can pre- prove this statistically, but for some reason in this 20-some game stretch that we've talked about where the Bills have only played only won one game, it seems like they've played the Patriots a lot tougher in New England than they have in Buffalo. If you remember... There was the game where Teddy Bruschi came back, and the Bills led that game all night, ended up blowing it. There was a game on opening day on Monday night where the Bills led all night, Then they had the strange uh, fumble on the kickoff and ended up losing yeah, that game. Yeah, they lost 25-24, I think, in that game, yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there any reason that, the, that you can think of that the Bills have seemed to play the Patriots better in Foxborough than they have at home? Um, you know what, I don't. I think these things are just kind of trends. They come and go in cycles. I don't think there's a particular statistical reason for it, and at least not one that I know. You know, one may exist, but you know, you're division rivals, and there is some merit that you know you know a guy, and uh, he tends to, uh, you know, you tend to be maybe be able to defend him a little better. And uh, but I don't know. To me, that's more of a cyclical thing, and I think that kind of ebbs and flows. And it's not really a specific reason they're they're doing better against them in New England than maybe in Buffalo. Because, you know, keep in mind, Tom Brady has not lost a regular season game in New England 
since 2006. Whew. I mean, that's, <laughs> I don't know how old you are, Steve, but that's, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it was quite a while ago. I mean, that's five years ago since they lost a home game. And so I think, uh, you know, I, I don't think, I think they still have a better chance to win in Buffalo than they would in New England. All right, so we we did, I think, a very good job of educating Bills and Patriots fans on what's ahead. Let's talk a little bit about the league in general two weeks in. Who is faring statistically well? Who isn't? Which teams that are winning are winning kind of poorly in your rankings? And which teams that are losing are faring decent in your rankings? Well, the one team I really think people have to be excited over is the Detroit Lions. And we... we, uh, I think I'm going to make the playoffs this year. We, we cited the dramatic, unbelievable, uh, we talked about the Buffalo statistical turnaround so far in 2011. Detroit did the same thing last year, uh, from almost dead last across the board in 2009 and Jim Schwartz's first year, to really a competitive team in every indicator that we use. Uh, last year, the end of the season with four straight wins, and they've won two more straight here in, to start 2010. And they, they really look good. And the one indicator, this is one of my favorite numbers in all of sports, we call it passer rating differential, Steve. And what this is, it's a difference between your offensive passer rating and your defensive passer rating. 60% of all NFL champs since 1940 were number one or number two in passer rating differential. It's really an incredible indicator of team success. And right now, Detroit, through two games, is number one at plus 53 in passer rating differential. That won't hold up, you know, but they put it up. You know, Green Bay last year won the Super Bowl. They were number one on that indicator. They were like plus 30, somewhere in that area, which are pretty consistent historically with champions. But right now, Detroit is tearing it up. They're, they're making life tough on opposing passes, and Matt Stafford is really living up to the hype finally of a number one draft pick. Yeah, so the Lions looking good on paper, 2-0. and Are there any teams that are 1-1 or 0-2 that you can see maybe just they maybe just had some bad luck, but are, are faring pretty well in the numbers that could make a run here in the last 14 games? Yeah, uh, you know, there's a couple teams. One, uh, let, let me say Carolina. I mean, everyone's excited about, about Cam Newton. I mean, what an explosive, exciting player, is he not? Oh, he's I so mean, athletic. Guy, I mean, he's so athletic, tall, and, and, and he had such a great season at Auburn last year. I mean, he carried that team. He won the highest, and we know how great he was, but he had, like, the greatest passing season in SEC history. Better than Peyton Manning, Jim Tebow, uh, I don't know, Jamarcus Russell, any of the great number one Matt Stafford, any of the number one picks they've had come out of the SEC at quarterback in recent years. He passed the ball better than all of them last year. And he also had, like, one of the great running seasons of all time. Such an athlete. So everyone, he's kind of been electrifying here in his first two games. Uh, you know, with over 400 yards, but the, the, actually, the reason that Panthers have lost both those games is because Right now, they're, they're the worst pass defense in football. They're dead last in defensive pass rating. They're just dead last in passing yards per attempt against them. And if they don't improve that pass defense, they could go 2-14 and 14 once again this year, even with an electrifying player at quarterback. You know, there's a team game. You need to, be, you need, you need to play well in all facets to be, to be a contender. And right now, Carolina is just the worst pass defense in football. Hmm. And that's going to be tough in that division with Drew Brees and Matt Ryan and Josh Freeman playing in that division. It's certainly not the right division to be one of the worst passing teams in football. Actually, there probably isn't a division that would be good to be the worst no, passing no, team no, in no. football. I mean, they, have, they, have, they, have an, they have an easy game this week. They got Jacksonville with Luke McCown, and I don't know what Jacksonville was thinking. You know, you know, the Jennifer <laughs> needed to ride days before the season. 
Luke McCall has been terrible. The Jacksonville passing game has been terrible. I don't know what Jack Del Rio is thinking. And we've commented on this before. He seems to believe that football in the NFL is still one on the ground and playing good run defense. And we've written about this. He doesn't get it. The NFL is a passive league. It always has been and always will be. And I don't know what he was thinking, thinking he can win in the NFL with Luke McCall. Now, granted, they won in week one. Edged out a, you know, edged out a victory over Tennessee. But that's not a... Uh, you know, this is a game Carolina can win, should win, and, and it's a game where, you know, the Carolina, the Carolina defense can kind of make, you know, play a bad quarterback, and and, and, and Kim Newton can actually shine in victory as opposed to just shining in defeat. So, The sportscasters are here with Kerry J. Byrne from coldheartfootballfacts.com. You can also find his work on sportsillustrated.com, and you can find him on Twitter at footballfacts. Question about Peyton Manning. Are you surprised at all that the Colts are as bad as they have been in the first two weeks without Peyton Manning? Or are we kind of coming to a point as a football society where we're going to have to acknowledge that maybe Peyton Manning is one of the most valuable players of all time in the sense that they never lose in September and October. I don't think they've been 0-2 since before he was even in the league. And he misses a couple games here and the team has just completely fallen apart. Was there any statistical well, reason to expect this? No, there's two. There's two problems here. Uh, one, one is just you know management. Bill Polling got caught with his pants down. How do you not have a backup plan when you when you know your quarterback's injured? And the public didn't know how bad it was, right? I mean, we didn't know he was going to be out all year until right before the season, right? So you have to figure any management knew, and their solution was to race out five days before the start of the season and sign Terry Collins, who's you know a very serviceable quarterback. But uh, that's not you know, that's not a good backup plan. They should have been prepared for this situation, and they weren't. But the bigger problem is, is you know, the Indies built an organization that believes it's all about one player. And the NFL is not about one player. And when that one player goes down, the team is just psychologically disintegrated. There's no excuse getting handed in week one like they did. We, we, we had Houston beating, you know, don't forget, Houston beat, Peyton Manning and the Colts last year in Houston. Again, with week one, we predicted that victory. It was a good matchup for Houston. Uh, and we were going to predict another Houston victory with Peyton Manning. The problem is not that Peyton Manning's out there. The team has just disappeared psychologically. It's melted. And it's awful to watch. I mean, Peyton Manning didn't play special teams. He didn't play defense. And, and the fact that the team's just kind of disintegrated in this respect is, is really embarrassing. You know, they've been told all along all these years that they're a one-man team. And apparently they were, and I, it's just tough to believe that a team would let itself be defined so much by one player. I don't care that he is one of the great quarterbacks of all time, which he is. No one's doubting that. But in football, you can't let yourself be defined that way, and they were. And it's, it's kind of embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for the organization. I'm actually going on a talk on Indie Sports Radio uh, <laughs> uh, later today. And, uh, you know, it's, it's embarrassing that they let themselves be put in this situation. And I'm and the fact that the players just have not manned up, that have kind of let themselves be defined by this one guy, is uh, it's too bad, really, because a team, it's team, a team should be more than one player, especially in football. His brother isn't doing much better. You know, I kind of seen him struggling in the preseason a little bit. It seems like he, he's always had this problem of overthrowing everybody. And I'm kind of worried for the Giants in the sense that they won the game the other night, but. St. Louis certainly had their chances. If Sam Bradford was a little bit better in the red zone, Giants probably lose that game. How have the Giants kind of fared statistically, and what are your thoughts on Eli Manning and kind of his struggles in the last, ooh, I don't know, 
It's, it's been going for a bit here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we've got 27 interceptions now in the last 18 games. You know, in the NFL these days, it's you need to be two to one touchdown interceptions. That's 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 great historically. It's, it's merely pretty good by today's standard because quarterbacks are so free, you know, to wheel and deal out there. You know, 27 picks in, in 18 games is going to kill you, and it's, it's killed the Giants. Let me cite a statistical example of the problem with this team. Uh, the Giants last year actually had 300 more yards of offense than the New England Patriots. Okay? The Patriots scored 518 points. The Giants scored 394. 124 fewer points, even though they had 300 more yards of offense. What that means is the team turned the ball over too much. They played bad red zone offense. They made too many mistakes. They played bad on special teams. They were not a smart football team. They did stupid things. And a lot of that comes back to the quarterback. You know, let's compare them to, you know, Tom Brady and the Patriots. You know, the Giants won yards, but Tom Brady had four interceptions. Peyton Manning had 25. That's 21 drives where the uh, drive in, you know, a difference of 21 drives where more than one a game where the Giants hijacked, you know, themselves and, and blew an opportunity to put points on the board. And that adds up over the course of time. Those picks kill you. Interceptions, one interception decreases your chances of winning a football game by about 20 percentage points. It's really one of the biggest plays, biggest turning points in sports, and and you can't win consistently when you when you make those mistakes, and that's been a big part of the problem with the Giants, certainly in the last you know year plus now. All right, last question. Going into week three here, is there a game or two on the schedule where Vegas has a team favored, but your numbers indicate an opposite result? Well. <laughs> You know, we're, we're posting our picks soon. I'm, I'm going through it pretty soon. I actually don't have them published. What I'll do is we'll shoot you a note while when those come out. But we have a very good track record of publish all our picks every week, picking every game against the spread. We have documented, Steve, in the 36 weeks since the start of the 2009 season, picking every game every week. We've had just eight losing weeks against the spread. Ooh. We have an incredible track record, and we have a really good track record of picking underdogs to win outright. Uh, you know, uh, in week one, Oakland was a three-point, you know, road underdog at Denver. We had them winning out like they did. Uh, the Lions were, a, a, you know, slight, you know, underdog on the road at Tampa. We had them winning out like they did. Uh, we are dealing with that week after week. I just don't have the answer for this week. That's we okay. By the end of the day, and, and have all our picks published tomorrow uh, at CHFF Insider, our cold football pack Insider, which is our premium product. And our numbers work, Steve, our track record itself. Winning weeks, week after week after week, picking every game every week against the spread. Okay, one last time. It's coldhardfootballfacts.com. It's the website. You can also find the work on si.com. You can find them on Twitter, at Football Facts. Anything else? Any other ways? Uh, that's pretty much it. I think we got okay. it all covered. We can, uh, yeah, we, we are, uh, I don't know, Sirius XM. We have a uh, Football Nation Live. It's my show, Sirius XM, Saturday, 10 to noon. Uh, we got it all going on, man. Uh, just all kinds of stuff. All right, really appreciate it. Great stuff. Looking forward to to uh, watching the games this weekend. And uh, thank you very much again for your time, joining us for a second time. And hopefully, we can do it again uh, as the numbers kind of uh, evolve over the season, and we have a better kind of grasp on who the better and worst, uh, not as good teams are statistically. Yeah, absolutely. And our numbers definitely get stronger later in the season. They become more indicative of victory. You just need to. A little more critical mass of data where they, where they really start pointing you in the right direction. You know, we have indicated that pick winners all by themselves, you know, 65% of the time. 
including, you know, in the second half of the year, like 80% of the time, if you're better in this method and stat, you win a game. And I'll, I'm happy to share all that with you guys, Steve. And uh, you can also find it at uh, CHFF Insider at coldhardfootballfacts.com as well. All right. Thanks a lot, buddy. We'll talk to you soon, okay? All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks, Kerry. All right, one last segment here in a jam-packed week for the sportscasters. We pre- debuted episode number 42 and episode number 43. I want to thank our guests from episode number 42, Jay Clemens from the National Football Post and Damon Hack from SportsIllustrated.com. Also want to thank our guests from today's show, episode number 43, Joe Lemire, taking time out of his day at Fenway Park. I want to thank him. From he's from Sports Illustrated as well, and also got to thank Kerry J. Byrne. He just heard from Cold Hard Football Facts. He's a guy's a riot. Great time. Uh, definitely got me excited to check out Bills and Patriots this week. Okay, last piece of business for today. Oh, you know why are we so bad at this, Don? What's that? Why do we constantly try to end the show without telling people where, where they can find, find our stuff? Sports-Casters.com. We should say that more often throughout the show. Yeah, the website is sports-casters.com. Everything's there. Everything is there. Facebook, facebook.com slash the sportscasters, twitter.com slash sports underscore casters, or at sports underscore casters, at Like Sports, at diversity23. Please email us, sportscasters at gmail.com, and check out the blog, the sportscasters.blogspot.com. Perfect. All right, pick four this week. You talked about it already. The game of the week, we're going to give it to the Bills versus Patriots, uh, which is shocking to Bills fans everywhere that three games in, they're still relevant, and they're playing a big game, but uh, they're about as excited as they can be here in Buffalo. The Bills are getting eight and a half points when I last checked, and that seems like a lot. I know they don't typically play the Patriots all that tight, especially at home for some reason, but I'm going to take the Bills. I think they can keep it close. I want to take the Bills. <laughs> There's Listen, I'm not a big Bills fan, but you know what? The older I get and the longer my friends and family suffer in the city that I love being a part of, the harder it gets for me to hate the Bills. And you got your championship. And I got my championship. And look it, I just have a team I like better than the Bills. I, I think I'm getting to the point where it's not that I hate the Bills. I just have a different team that I like. Right. And every part of me wants the Bills to be in Buffalo forever. I want them to be relevant. It makes our city more relevant. I think in some way it makes the show more relevant. For sure, right. And I'm rooting for them. But they got to show me they can do it. I can't ignore the 15-game losing streak. And I'll say this. If it was in New England and it was 12 points, I would take the Bills because for whatever reason, the Bills do a lot better in this game in New England than they do in Buffalo. But I think that the Bills may be buying into the hype a little bit too much about themselves. And I think that the pressure that they're going to feel at Rich Stadium or Ralph Wilson Stadium this weekend is going to be a little bit too much. And I'm going to regrettably take New England. I'm going to lay the eight and a half. And I'm, you know what? I'm going to honestly say right now, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's a great game, and I hope the Bills win. All righty, me too. Uh, my host choice this week, 
Uh, this game isn't probably on most people's radar as far as excitement goes, so we had to pick eight games this week, so that's there There you have it. <laughs> uh, the Miami at Cleveland game, that's Sunday at 1 o'clock on CBS. Miami is getting two and a half points, so Cleveland's the favorite here, probably just by virtue of being the home team. Cleveland uh, has really not played anybody and struggled. Miami's played two difficult teams and struggled. I think Miami's slightly I don't I said this year earlier that I didn't think they were going to be very good but I think they're better than their 0-2 record and Cleveland might be worse than I thought they were so I'm going to take Miami plus the two and a half all right my host choice is actually a college game and it's a really interesting one number eight Oklahoma State takes on number nine Texas A&M that game is Saturday September 24th at 3.30. It's on ESPN or ABC. It depends kind of where you live and what your regional coverage is going to be. And I got a couple numbers from AccuScore. AccuScore has Oklahoma State winning this game 60% of the time with the four and a half points that they're getting. It also has them winning the game 50% of the time outright. So... I will take the four and a half points. I'm going to take Oklahoma State, and I'm going to mention to everyone who gets the chance to watch this game to watch a wide receiver named Justin Blackman. He's probably the, one of the best wide receivers in college football this year, if not the best. He's a big, strong kid. He'll maybe remind you of Megatron. Check him out. See what you think. Justin Blackman, an interesting game, but I'm going to take Oklahoma State with the four and a half points. My worldwide leader is the Sunday night game, Steelers at the Colts. Uh, the Steelers are giving up. I wrote a 10, but it's actually 11. The Steelers are laying 11 points to the Colts. I don't know that I like Indy any better than I like Seattle. I mean, I guess that would be a good battle of terrible teams this year. And the Steelers beat up badly on Seattle. I don't think 11 is enough, so I will take Pittsburgh minus 11. My worldwide leader pick is the Saturday night ABC college football game. Number two or three, depending what poll you're looking at, LSU is minus five and a half against West Virginia. And a good buddy of mine is a graduate of West Virginia, and I always pay attention to West Virginia football. And they've struggled against some bad talent this year. They've been lucky to win the games that they've had. I think they're way overrated in terms of their rank. And I think I was guilty of underrating LSU a little bit earlier in the season. I know the game is in Morgantown, and I know that no matter what happens, they're going to set couches on fire. I don't (laughs) care. I love LSU in this game. And to to only have to lay five and a half points less than a touchdown, I'll take it any day of the week. I'm going to take LSU over West Virginia. My bold prediction last week was the Saints over Cleveland, and I I took double the spread. I'm going to ride the Saints again. I'm going to take triple the spread. Um, I think Houston is going to win their division almost by default this year. I kind of talked to Steve off the air and said that uh, the Bills are going to be an okay team this year. If they can beat New England, then all bets are off, whatever. But they're going to be an okay team, and I think that there's going to be two teams that go to the playoffs that the Bills are probably going to be on par or better than, and one being whoever goes from the NFC West. And I think Houston, I I think they're a good team. I I think they're far from a a very good team, though, and they kind of showed it last week. No, I'm wrong. They're 2-0 right now. But uh, I just think they haven't played anybody yet. I think they beat Miami and And Indy, Indy, who was a disaster. So... Bef- the Saints are only a four-point dog. I'll take the Saints minus 12 against Houston at home. Uh, show me something, Houston, I guess. This is the game to prove that you're as good as your record. 
All right. I don't feel any better about this than I did my first pick, but I, my bold prediction is I'm going to take the Patriots minus 20 over the Bills. Look at I want to be wrong about both of these picks. <laughs> I really do, and some people who know me maybe don't believe that, and some people who do maybe do. I don't know. But as I said in the first pick, my mindset about the Bills has changed quite a bit over the last few years. Maybe it's winning the championship. Maybe it's doing this show. Maybe it's just loving Buffalo as much as I do. But I just think that the Patriots are in FU mode. Yeah. And I've said this every week. I don't trust the Patriots to stop. And I think that this game is so big for the Bills that if and when they do get behind – they might get discouraged, and I don't think the Patriots are going to be kind enough to just kind of run the clock out. I, I see this as a shootout. Um, hopefully it's closer, than, like you said, than you're predicting. But the Bills, what's scary is they had a hell of a time with Jason Campbell and whoever that rookie was. I can't even remember his name off the top of my head. And McAlvin played one of the worst games he's ever played as a pro, and Brady will eat him alive if that happens again. I don't know who they have that can cover Gronkowski. So, yeah, I agree with you that I think it's either going to be tight or a blowout, if that makes sense. I don't think it's going to be like a like a seven-point game. I think it'll, it'll be real close where the Bills either manage to hold on or they do what they've done in the past and choke it away somehow, or the Patriots run away with it. I can't see the Bills blowing out the Patriots, obviously. but You know, one last thing. I think of the two picks that I made, New England minus 9 and New England minus 20, I would almost guarantee I'm going to either lose both of those or win both of those. That's kind of the way I feel yeah. about it. I think it's going to be a real close game, or I think the right. Bills are going to get blown out. Right. And the reason I think that is just because of the me- their mentality that I think that the Patriots have right now. Right. So that's where I'm at. Should be good. All right. Two shows. Again, episode 42 with Damon Hack and Jay Clemens. Episode number 43, which you're finishing right now with Joe Lemire, Carrie Byrne. You can find it on, oh, geez, iTunes, sportsstatcasters.com. You can find it on Downcast, Stitcher, Instacast. We're all over the place. Yep. Find us. Don Q the Hip. We'll be back next week. All right.